All right, so we're back at Cracks in Postmodernity with Jonathan Colbreth, who is a writer living in Southern California. He has a degree in liberal arts from Thomas Aquinas College and in philosophy from Leuven in Belgium, and also works as a church musician. So first of all, Jonathan, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, and I want to acknowledge our mutual friend, Urban Hannon, who kind of hooked us up. Um, he he appeared on the podcast twice. I think it was like last September, but he really urged me to reach out to you, and finally we're doing this. So shout out to Urban. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, the reason why, um, the main thing I wanted to talk about with you, you recently had this piece in First Things about Andrew Tate. Um, and it seems like as of recently, more and more Christian slash conservative traditionalist writers are coming out critiquing Tate and, you know, the kind of outlandish ideas he has. So I'm just interested for you, like what prompted you to write this piece? What, yeah, what was it that uh, inspired you to write it now at this point? Yeah, um, well, at the same time, as you say, I mean, the reason you say that, you know, a lot of conservative and traditionalist types have been starting to come out with critiques of Andrew Tate is, I think, because for some reason, they've, you know, people have noticed some right wing, right wing figures have actually started coming out in support of him. He's he started to get more of a presence on the right um, for one reason or another. And, you know, he's always for a while, he's been, you know, gaining popularity with with uh, with young men, especially, you know, teenage men. You know, I, I've, I used to be a teacher and I, I remember hearing his name a lot among, you know, among my uh, my students. Uh, you know, boys in high school, um, and so he's had an influence for a long time on on young men who are very online for whatever reason. But recently, his influence has has been noticed by people on the right, and uh, and who have taken him as kind of a uh, symbol of you know a few different things: Mas masculinity. You know, that's been his that's been his big thing for a while. It's kind of like a masculinity guru, uh, and. Uh, uh, They've they've been attracted to him because of his rhetoric against things like feminist ideology um, and uh, you know woke ideology uh, in different ways, um, and uh, now he's also become very much a symbol of free speech. He's seen as very much a victim of cancel culture. Uh, he's been banned from social media a few times, and now of course he's under house arrest for you know uh, charges of. Uh, human trafficking out in Romania, where he's been living for for some time now, um, and that was uh, so the main the main impetus, I guess, for my article was the interview that he recently had with Tucker Carlson. Uh, Tucker Carlson actually flew out to Romania. Um, <laughs> it surprised me that you know, I guess uh, Tate is a that worth it enough <laughs> um, yeah. to fly all the way out there to to interview him in his house where, where he's you know where he's been stuck for some time um uh so that that really you know that really was the main uh um trigger i guess for the article you know tucker carlson is somebody who i listen to or watch occasionally and sometimes i like what he has to say but then then he goes and interviews somebody like andrew, andrew tate or or one of these other figures from the from the online manosphere who uh has shared similar ideas and 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 uh, that that always sort of you know uh, annoys me a little bit uh, when that happens. So I that was why I wanted to write the article. Um, but there's a you know I, I'm also just concerned about his influence among young men. Um, I'm a pretty young millennial myself, uh, and so I'm close to a lot of the a lot of the the, the guys in the generation who would be uh, influenced. I know a lot of I know a few of them anyway personally who. Um, 
who who are aware of Andrew Tate and you know curious about him and uh, not just him but you know a lot of other figures as well who have have um, uh, made an appeal to to that particular demographic and um, so I'm I'm concerned about his influence uh, especially among Christians on the right who are in a way my people um, and uh, that that would be the that would be the main reason for writing the article I'd say um, yeah I don't know if that's uh, um, yeah, no. Um, I think what's most interesting to me, though, about your critique that I mean, I haven't really seen in many others out of the many other critiques of Tate is this uh, this kind of pagan asceticism, this stoicism that you pick yeah. up on in his rhetoric. That's, you know, it's yeah. about developing a sense of order, discipline, but which isn't really ordered towards any like identifiable telos other than, you know, empowering yourself and I don't know, these kind of fleeting skills. Yeah. Um, and it's, I, I think I sent you, I wrote something kind of similar about Peterson, who's clearly has a different kind of MO, but <clears throat> in, in all of this kind of manosphere discourse, I'm seeing a lot of like order for the sake of order, order for the sake of like being able to control your life rather than like the ideal of a Christian asceticism, which is ordered towards like being in a relationship with the creator, seeking this greater beauty, this this greater sense of happiness, which ultimately I think makes life much more exciting than how someone like Tate mm -hmm. or Peterson is, is painting it out to be. Like, you know, yeah. when he's when Peterson says, like, you know, get up and make your bed in the morning, like, why? Like, who cares? You know? Right. So can um, you say a little bit more about like this this pagan asceticism versus a Christian one? Sure. I think uh, you know, so Tate presents himself as a proponent of stoicism. I think he says that explicitly. Yeah. Uh, in many places, including the interview with with Carlson, um, Stoicism. However well he understands what Stoicism is, that's, that is that is how he identifies the the ethic, so to speak, that he's trying to um, give to young men in particular. Uh, and he kind of describes it basically as an ethic of self discipline, taking responsibility, um, uh, self control, um, specifically control over your emotions. Uh, you know, he he says he says things like you know, well in the in the interview he said things like, you know, to be a good man you have to have a hard life and you have to learn how to, you know, overcome a lot of the struggles that life will throw at you. This is all stuff that sounds really attractive, even to a Christian from a Christian point of view. There's a lot of this that sounds attractive. But there is a lot about stoicism that is attractive, but kind of like you say when it's when it's divorced from any uh, really identifiable. Talos, uh, uh, it can actually be sort of a, a, a cover for something a bit more insidious, I would say. Um, and so, so that's that's kind of my worry. And I think when you when you compare uh, when you compare his Stoic ethic with um, the a Christian ascetical ethic, um, it's uh, really important to identify where the difference in the where the difference is in terms of the Talos. Um, uh, Else that I want to go with that. I mean, uh, yeah, paganism. The um, the paganism of this ethic is is also noteworthy um, because uh, you know one of the one of the persons I cited in in the article is uh, Louise Perry, who has a book book out recently on the sexual revolution, and she's one of these um, emerging figures um, uh, who sort of present themselves as feminists, but in a kind of uh, uh, Different, a different approach to feminism that that um, uh, that is very much in dialogue with 
traditional Christianity and Christian, you know, sexual ethics and, and the like. But anyway, her, her article on Andrew Tate, she made a really insightful point, um, which I found corroborated in a way through indirectly through the works of Michel Foucault. But her point, her point was that Andrew Tate is actually a very old fashioned figure. He's a, he, uh, he resembles a very typical um, aristocratic male elite figure in pagan, you know, Greco-Roman antiquity, uh, um, you know, who have, you know, they have their harem of women and, and they're seen as these upright, res responsible, disciplined uh, men who have, because in, in a way, because of their, their discipline and their, um, their ethic have, have kind of entitled, are kind of entitled to a lot of these social privileges. Um, uh, and um, so Tate resembles one of these figures. And it was, What's interesting is that it was in this context of Greco-Roman antiquity when Christianity came on the scene, it was really perceived as a uh, challenge to this sort of ethic and this way of life, particularly a challenge to men um, in the in the, in that context. Um, and um, uh, where, am I, where am I going with this? Uh, I guess the contrast I'm looking at here is the contrast between the Christian asceticism and the pagan asceticism. The pagan asceticism did have a telos, but it was but it's a um, but a telos that was directly challenged in a way by Christianity when it when it came on the scene. Um, and you don't want to you you have to be careful not to miss that opposition, not to be de uh, deceived by the common appearance of you know ascetical discipline and self-control and responsibility that that um, you know both worldviews seem to preach. Um, so that's kind of why I went I went that route with the yeah no and I want to ask like on this note of Foucault and how even mm -hmm. he recognizes that like Christian yeah. is you know it has this ascetic dimension that mirrors Christian monasticism which is very distinct from yeah. the pagan understanding of sexuality but yeah. I, I do want to ask okay so he there are certain points where Tate presents himself as a faithful Muslim and yeah. I don't know I mean like I got into an argument with one somebody once about like how devout he was. And this person was basically saying, you know, his vision of sexuality fits with, you know, the Quranic vision because, you know, the 72 virgins in heaven. And I was like, okay, sure. But at the end of the day, like this is a deeply pagan point of view and that I think most Muslims would also have some issues with, you know? So I don't know, like, do you have thoughts on this, his claim to be yeah. just a Muslim? Uh not a, not a whole lot of uh, very well formed thoughts. It's, a, it's also a question in my mind how how devout he is and how devout he could be. He would be considered by you know traditional Muslims. Um, uh, you know, there was another interview he did a while back before he converted, I think, to Islam, which is that was a pretty recent thing, um, uh, where he was sort of you could tell he was, you know, kind of leaning in that direction. He's talking about Christianity versus Islam and and um, and he was his criticism of Christianity at that point, which I, I think he probably still uh, um, adheres to now, was that it's it's been feminized um, in the West uh, in a way that Islam has has really resisted, um, and for that reason he thinks Islam is winning and Christianity is a losing religion or is a loser's religion, and he he says it's losing to Islam. Um, because of 
um, Christianity's capitulation in his view to to um, feminism and to um, uh, a lot of these ideologies. It, it's a, it's confusing in a way because um, uh, it's hard. He doesn't. He's not very clear about what exact what exactly is Christianity is capitulating to. Mm -hmm. um, that he has an answer to. One of the things he mentions is the birth rate. <laughs> um, Christianity, I guess, is is you know, not not making a lot of uh, progress on that front. Whereas in Islam, where you can have as many women as you want, <laughs> uh, suppose well, I guess on his way of um, talking about it, uh, he sees a lot more hope for you know the human race in those in those in that respect. I don't really know what to think about all of that. Um, uh, it does seem in a way that um, it, it's hard to identify any really substantial, like any meaty substance or spirituality to Tate's ethic that that um, uh, would comport with some of the more traditional Muslim, uh, uh, you know, spirituality or what have you. So I'm not I'm not really sure to be honest. And one one thing I would also be cautious about is uh, uh, whether Islam is not serving um, a purpose for Tate that is sort of extraneous to the to Islam itself as a religion. Like religion in any form, Christianity too, to be quite honest, can be used ideologically as a as a um, support for things that don't have anything to do with religion and i kind of mentioned this in the article too like i think there's a there's a way in which on um uh, christianity and christian moral rhetoric whatever can be invoked um to justify ways of life that in, in actual fact in their essence aren't compatible with the real essence of of christianity like, like even a like even a masculine uh ideology of the sort that andrew tate upholds can uh, find its way into into a Christian way of talking about something like marriage, for example. Um, and um, but I think you know it's very possible that the same thing could happen to Islam. <laughs> um, uh, it could just be a a um, a way of giving a sort of pious uh, garb to um, a, a way of life that really doesn't have anything to do with religion. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it, it, what you're saying makes me think on one hand of well back in submission and how, you know, he kind of has this similar critique of Christianity in France that it's, you know, it's emasculated, it's weak, only Islam yeah. is capable of confronting, you know, secularism. Yeah. Uh, but also I, I had a, a Muslim student in one of my classes at a Catholic school who was very critical of Christianity because she perceived it to be watering down its morals and its, you know, its teachings. And she saw in Islam something much stronger, uh, you know, something like a more powerful bulwark against like the nihilism of the secular yeah. West. So, and again, like it's, there's merit to that. There it's, is. Yeah. There's there merit to that. There. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's something you have to be very discerning about because um, th there's, there's merit to that critique of Christianity today, I think, but at the same time, you also have to remember at its inception, something Louise Perry, I think, has pointed out, and um, or uh, at least implicit in, in something she wrote, and it's implicit, I think, in Foucault's more, much more extensive writing on um, asceticism, uh, 
in the Christian early Christian context, Christianity was perceived even back then by the by the, the Roman aristocracy as effeminate. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, and Nietzsche also, you know, kind of hearkening back to a sort of pagan um, ethic, also would say, you know, um, Christianity was a, was a religion for women and for slaves or something like this. Uh, and um, but I think and I think that's because it imposed on men. One of the reasons, anyway, is that because it imposed on men from the very beginning the same uh, disciplines and uh, disciplines of self-denial and um, chastity in a way that it imposed upon women as well. And, and there's, there is a kind of equality between the genders, so to speak, to use kind of anachronistic language <laughs> um, that, that Christianity introduced in a context where that was really unheard of. Um, and uh, so, you know, while there might be merit to a critique of Christianity today, you know, to the critique that it has, Christians anyway, have largely capitulated to various secular ideologies. Um, at the same time, you have to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, you have to, you have to really, you have to really, um, yeah, you have to really exercise careful discernment when you're talking about these things. And, um, and I worry that some Christians who are attracted to a sort of a uh, ideology of the manosphere, you know, <laughs> might not might not have that discernment um, yeah and I, I want to look at the fact that there is this surge of like manosphere bootstrapping on the right right now because i mean on one hand this idea of bootstrapping denies the fact that we're contingent beings so like we are not self-sufficient we depend on other people but ultimately we depend on divine grace which is something um that yeah sure somebody can choose to read that as like a feminizing worldview especially for men to have to de depend on divine grace yeah but, but why is it that, like, okay, the right in the U.S. conventionally is, associates itself with Christianity? Like, why is there this turn towards this very pagan worldview? Like, why abandon, you know, our Judeo-Christian quote-unquote values? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I mean, I'm sure there, I'd have to, I have to think a lot more about what are the sort of social, various social causes going into that identification. Um, I mean, you know any any movement that is that calls itself Christian. Uh, this happens with any Protestant, any heretic, any heretical movement that's still within the kind of Christian orb. Um, it it, it uh, usually begins by taking one aspect of the faith and sort of exaggerating it at the expense of everything else. And so you know the, in our scriptures we in the scriptures we do read. That the man is the head of of his wife, that she owes him obedience, and uh, you know all these sorts of things that you know everybody wants to read as like the the patriarchy. You know, Christ, Christianity is a, is um is religion of the patriarchy, even though historically it was perceived by a very patriarchal Roman society as effeminate. Um, uh, everybody directs most of their hatred of the patriarchy at Christianity, or their if they want to defend the patriarchy. Uh, a lot of them uh, on the right, not entertain, but a lot of them um, appeal to some of these things that are present in Christianity in, in its, in, you know, St. Paul's teaching about marriage um, uh, in order to defend this sort of concept of patriarchy or, um, or whatever. And that goes into a lot of the ideology around the manosphere as well. Um, and, and, you know, that's a, that's a, 
that's interesting and worth thinking about is but it, but at the same time i think um with this other point of view uh you know of the the aesthetical dimension of marriage um which is not as noticed i think in these uh you know areas of the of the right these parts of the right where they where they are focused on you know male headship in the context of marriage they forget the aesthetical dimension of marriage and i i think thinking about the aesthetical dimension of marriage in tandem with uh, you know uh, the christian patriarchal ideal so to speak i put that in scare quotes um should prompt us to really question and not take not not be too sure of our, of what i'm um, sure of ourselves or sure of what the idea of male headship means uh, and how much we can deduce from you know the masculinity uh, about you know the the duties of men and wife in marriage um i read something recently uh by um father sebastian walsh he's a norbertine theologian uh, a great Thomistic theologian but he also writes these more accessible books um he wrote one he published one recently um what was it called it's about it's about keeping your children catholic it's like a it's, a it's a book for parents um and um in one of the chapters he's talking about the relation between man and wife and what it means you know for man to be the head and he made an interesting point i don't know how strong of a point this is or how strongly he was making it but he seemed to be saying that um the notion that the man is the head in in marriage that's a revealed truth that's not something you can really deduce from from the natural qualities of yeah. man versus woman that's a revealed truth that's it's and it, the reason for it is that the man represents christ and the woman represents the church that's the reason for it um uh, but i think in the manosphere that that is kind of that is uh sort of ignored or not, or not ignored at least it's sort of it's, it's kind of secondary to what the the project of the manosphere is which is which is this really um kind of obsessive attempt to deduce male headship and male authority patriarchy basically from the from the natural qualities of man and woman um yeah. which you know i don't know maybe there is something to it but it's but it, i think it's a much there's a much weaker uh, position or a much weaker argument than they they try to make it out it's, it's it's i think it's rooted in a lot of um uh constructs essentially um they're very old constructs you know patriarchal societies have been around forever um but but they are still constructs i think that are assumed to be you know natural law or whatever yeah um, Mm. and and this is very tied into identity politics and you know yeah, the obsession with that. identity in general but like um to uh we, we ought to be really careful about the degree to which we make you know male and female into these metaphysically absolute identities from which you can deduce all these things about about um you know i don't know uh their the relations with man and woman you can say a lot about the relations of man and woman based on the truths we know from our faith, uh, from revelation and the revelation of Christ as the bridegroom of the church. Um, um, but, um, but you know, that's a, so that's a sacramental truth that is kind of pushed to the side by a lot of this, you know, uh, manosphere, identitarian discourse. Um, 
Yeah, and no, I was going to bring up, I mean, this is one of the things you've written in your other articles about um, this, the self-referential construct of identity, that it's, it's really a matter of who I say I am, what I like, what I, you know, what my temperament is, rather than being in relationship with the one who created me, like living in this kind of, this dialogic kind of structure. Um, and I, what I find missing from, from this whole manosphere thing is like, there isn't a sense of masculinity as fatherhood, as this calling to generate life, to to give the way that God the Father gives, you know. And that's like again back to this identity thing. It's super individualistic. It's super narcissistic. It's not about how is my being fulfilled in creating, giving life to someone right. else, you know. Um, but again, like it, this goes back to what you're saying about these naturalistic conceptions of masculinity versus revealed ones, like. We understand God as Father through revelation, through Jesus. We understand mm -hmm. fulfillment as sacrifice, as as charity through the cross. You yeah, know, that's not necessarily a self-evident truth. You know, right. from at our our instinctive drives, right? Right. Uh, we understand. Um, I think you said fulfillment. We understand that to be a kenosis was is, yes. a, is, is the word I used in the article. Uh, Self-emptying, right? Christ. Um, Christ is. You know the model for masculinity like the, the primary model for masculinity especially in the context of marriage i mean in every context obviously priesthood <laughs> but marriage um because the the man represents christ as the one who empties himself yeah. which is i think quite diametrically opposed <laughs> to the identity focused way of thinking about about masculinity um uh christ is a model for us precisely in that he's losing himself. He, he, he is emptying himself. He is not trying to, um, he's not trying to build up this or, or, or um, you, know, you know, build up or uh, earn the rights or earn the privileges to identify as such and such, you know, um, to identify the way he wants. It's, it's, it's not about that at all. It's, it's exactly the, the opposite. Um, and I think that's, that goes also into this other dimension you're talking about of giving um giving life uh, uh sacrifice um and uh um you know being a being a creator of life is um really the dimension of fatherhood um that that is how a man especially a father is supposed to practice this self-emptying dimension um uh, of his masculinity um um and it's giving life in every respect it's it's um which is always a giving away of himself and a sacrificing of himself at every stage of the way for the sake of those to whom he is giving right those those for the sake of those who he loves his children but also his wife you know um and uh there's no there's no stage at which you can say okay finally i've i've, I've arrived um i've arrived at a sense of self mm -hmm. where, where i can where I can finally permit myself to indulge in a little bit of my ego because I've earned the right after after having sacrificed everything, right? Like that's, that's not sacrifice. If you're, that's the, that's why it's kind of a false asceticism. Um, it's a it's you're in in the false asceticism, the pagan asceticism. You sacrifice for the sake of your ego ultimately, um, but it, but in Christianity it doesn't stop. There is no point at which self denial, self giving, and emptying stops right yeah and it's i want them to note though that like it's through this understanding of fulfillment through self-gift that we see that 
in Christianity, we're able to maintain this this both and understanding of gender sure. relations because the woman does the same thing. Like the woman is oh, yeah. to generate life, so she has. We have this equal dignity, but of course, like there is, it comes in these distinct modes. Like gender is not totally obliterated, but it's also oh, yeah. this like totally hierarchical power dynamic. You know? Right. Um, I think I think that's exactly right. I mean, even in the church, I think this is a. This used to confuse me why sometimes we say the church is the bride of Christ and other times we say the church is the body of Christ. So like, you know, sometimes they're distinguished, sometimes they're identified somehow. Um, and, and I think that is actually a really important um, symbol, uh, more than a symbol, but an important symbol when you're talking about gender relations too. Like they, it's a, it's a, always a reciprocal and, and mutual act of self-giving um but like mutually unconditional uh in in, a, in an ideal you know uh relationship um it's like yeah reciprocity of um self-giving or self-emptying love is a kind of interesting kind of paradoxical uh thing because because um for love to be unconditional you don't demand reciprocity or you don't demand return you're not doing it for the sake of for the sake of the reciprocation right christ's love for us is unconditional because he he preserves our you know he grants to us our freedom not to reciprocate um which um he, he loves us anyway but uh but he is inviting us nonetheless to enter into the same kind of dynamic with him um, uh, um and with everybody in our in our lives as well yeah, um, yeah. I, I want to ask the like kind of bigger picture question about the figure of Tate himself though because sure I mean these are things like I, I touched on in the the piece I wrote for American Spectator um like it's I find it very hard to take this guy seriously first of all because uh, on one hand there's this kind of performative campy edge that he has especially like if you watch his videos with Aiden Ross the twitch streamer it's, yeah. it's kind of hilarious because they're playing this whole hyper masculinity card to the point that it becomes a little bit homoerotic it's like this yeah. exaltation of the masculine principle which is like outlandish but then yeah. on like i guess a darker note i do have to ask like has this guy risen to fame because certain powers that be want to stigmatize anybody who talks about masculinity as something distinct or as something positive because mm -hmm. I, don't know, I mean i at least i'm just starting to observe that people who do say okay yeah there is a gender binary being a man is different from a woman it's becoming oh, yeah. easy to pigeonhole someone and be like, oh, so are you like Andrew Tate? Then are you promoting like men? Oh, yeah. women? So like, oh, I yeah. definitely think the, you know, certain certain elites have interest in promoting someone like that so that it's easier to condemn anyone who speaks on anything like tangentially, you know, anything similar in that way. I don't know. What, yeah. what do you make of this guy? Like, Can you take him seriously? I don't know. That's a great, that's a great question and a great uh, hypothesis <laughs> about uh, about how he is being used in a way um, by by the elite. Um, so like, I guess how he is indirectly serving the the ideology that he claims to oppose, which is increasingly, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, transhumanistic in a way, uh, uh, you know, transgender ideology and um, the stuff that wants to, to deny differences that are out, that are real differences. Um, uh, yeah, I think it shows how the different, the opposite uh, ends of the 
identity politics spectrum really feed each other um in this case possibly in a in a um, very deliberate way um maybe i don't know um but whether yeah whether to take him seriously i think uh precisely because these extremes feed each other in this way uh you you know should get you thinking or should get you asking the question right away whether it's just a bit absurd to to um, endorse one extreme for the sake of you know owning the libs or whatever you know uh, uh, which is another reason why it so irritated me that he went on Tucker Carlson's show and, and Carlson just sort of like let him have you know let him have the floor um, like what, what what purpose does it really serve but but owning the other side um, which may in fact be to reinforce the you know the extremes um, that already that immediately makes it feel just absurd um, and not not a serious thing. Um, uh, but yeah, the other dimension that you mentioned, the sort of weird homoerotic dimension of the manosphere, that's you know you notice this elsewhere too, not just in Andrew Tate's, but like there's the whole sphere of the internet that uh, revolves around. The, the Bronze Age pervert, <laughs> um, and and you know these these types, which are often almost explicitly homoerotic, and, and you know basically admit admit to being that. Um, but it, but as a as a it's it's weird. It's like as a stance of opposition to the woke ideology that um, that promotes things like you know LGBT uh, uh, ideology. Um, the extreme reaction to that produces something that in its essence is actually not not extremely different it just presents itself ideologically in a different way um you know the, the this is something that i that i find something like in in andrew tate or anybody else's you know over reaction to to um, feminism or, li or liberalism if you want um and the kind of pansy version of these things um produces a very similar thing but uh with a different with a different guise because it's it's disguised by again this sort of ascetical ethic that I described earlier, which makes it look different at first. But if it ultimately still serves um, a lot of the same uh, moral decrepitudes, uh, a lot of the same perversions, then like how seriously can you take it as a as a um, act of resistance to the elite ideology you can't really take it that seriously um i don't know if that's a very coherent way of yeah. answering the question um yeah, yeah and i just think it's like with all of these kinds of uh these figures who are going viral like i do think there's reason to be suspicious about again like who is propelling them into you know such epic heights of, of fame and yeah. like we, we do need to have that kind of critical eye and not take them for face value and I think, him. I mean, what, what you're saying in your article that ultimately cuts to the root of like, okay, but these people are out there. They are making a lot of noise. What should yeah. we be taking away? Like, what is, um, what is like, what's a, like a true critique of what's being put out there, especially to young people who are eating it up, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, with that, I wanted to ask you, Jonathan, anything you want to plug before we wrap up? Anything you want to direct our listeners to? Uh, good question. I mean, uh you know, instead of going to Andrew Tate or a lot of these manosphere figures for your self-help, you know, guides, uh, read the Church Fathers or something, or you know, read the read the mystics. Um, you know, 
I don't know, read uh, Thomas Merton, who is a great guide on questions of identity, <laughs> um, like read, read the church's tradition, um, the Christian tradition. Uh, we have so much wealth to draw from um, as, as Christians. We don't need these other figures. Um, you know, occasionally they'll say something that sounds right, but if it's divorced from the entire constellation of, of uh, you know, disciplines and ideals that, that make up our Christian faith and, and way of life, then um, it makes them, that makes them dangerous if it, uh, that separation makes them dangerous. Um, so I just want to plug the Christian spiritual tradition, <laughs> yeah. but also if you if you want to follow me, you could also follow me on Twitter. Um, that's a that's a, I talk sometimes occasionally talk about these things on Twitter, and I write about I write about these things, um, post my articles there, and and, um, and uh, uh, I also try to you know use my social media to bring attention to other voices out there who I think are really worth listening to. So. Um, yeah, that's yeah, and, I, and just to add to what you're saying about like the the alternatives to Tay, like I think also just looking for actual father figures to have a a, a real relationship with to you know you, yeah. like, even if for, for people who don't have positive relationships with their fathers, like I know this is why Christian community community in general yeah. is crucial, like because that's where we can find people who set a real example, you know. Uh, and, yeah, definitely, yeah. Uh, but an example and also uh, you know give yourselves people whom you can make sacrifices for and learn and learn to love in a Christian way, you know, learn to be, learn to be a giving person. You need other, you need community to be that kind of a, that kind of a man. Yeah. Because without community, like it stays at the level of ideology, like you can have all the right ideas, but without those relationships where you actually give yeah. yourself and receive from people, like I mean, who cares yeah. at the end of the day? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, great. Great point. So, all right. So if you haven't read Jonathan's article on first things, please check it out. As you said, follow him on Twitter. You can read his other works. But Jonathan, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me again.